I want to talk to you about you. My subject, what about me? We live in a culture of selfish ambition, self-seeking, self-fulfillment, selfishness. Uh, It's never-ending. It's all about me. In the dark ages before Yelp, there was something we called yellow pages. And to find a restaurant, you'd have to let your fingers do the walking through the yellow pages. Remember that? Yeah. And you'd have to guess which place to go. Well, Yelp came out as an app. And though it's kind of weird, any person, regardless of your culinary, you know, your food training or credentials, whether you have them or you don't, anybody can instantly rate a place online and influence it based on their own preferences, true or false. Yep. I love reading Yelp reviews, reviews, especially bad ones. I'll give you a couple of them that came right off of the internet. This guy says, don't try the pizza. It's so good, you'll come back every day. The pizza is too good. They're doing their job too well. One star. Okay. The next one says, I thought about whether to give it one or two stars, but considering I would not want to come back here, even if I was in a carriage drawn by a hundred horses with a swarm of bees chasing me. One star. These are real. These are real Yelp reviews. The next one, this guy gives it one star, and then he says, not nearly worth the price. The food, of course, is exceptional. Well, wait, that's a good thing, (laughs) right? The staff was giddy and very inappropriate for a cuisine joint, dressing in ill-fitting, mediocre suits, and vaguely rude, self-absorbed. Finally, see if you can guess where this review comes from. I expected this park to be one of the highlights on our 10-day road trip. We were horribly, terribly, tragically disappointed. The rangers there were unfriendly and, frankly, rude. Tourists were drinking tea from parked cars. The smell of sulfur nearly knocked my girlfriend off her feet, and the stench followed us throughout the day. Any guess where that was? Yellowstone National Park. I'm sorry, sweetheart, this legendary national treasure didn't live up to your expectations. So we've created an entire rating system in this country based on how we are being served. Did it live up to what I expected or I wanted? Did I leave satisfied and fulfilled? Did the staff serve me well? The first question we want to discuss is a question that's been engineered in us from the beginning of society and culture. And the question is, what about me? What about my wants, my desires, my hopes, my comforts? See, we live in a culture obsessed with self. See, treating ourselves, entertaining ourselves, comforting ourselves, numbing ourselves, improving ourselves. What about me? Now, surely that a culture with this kind of obsession with self would be a culture fully satisfied, fully fulfilled, secure, flourishing, beyond belief. Well, you know, you'd think they'd be at peace and calm in this country because we've got everything we need, but that's not true at all. And it doesn't take much research to see how high our levels of dissatisfaction and anxiety are in our country. Our houses have never been bigger. Our cars 
can drive themselves. Every piece of entertainment and information is instantly available at our fingertips, yet we're more dissatisfied than ever. Now, I do know this about most people in here, maybe all. You want to flourish. You want to live life to the full, a life that is vibrant and deeply meaningful. I think so. The good news is God wants that too. And so do we as a church. But it's almost like God hasn't created you or me to flourish through self-service and self-absorption. It doesn't seem to work. There's a paradox here. Self-service doesn't bring fulfillment or flourishing. It actually creates a heart in you that gets spoiled, it festers, and it rots. Merry Christmas. Our self-obsession turns into a prison of self. It's a dungeon we can't escape from, and we're bound in chains by all of our self-centeredness. Sometimes we have to trust our Heavenly Father to know what's best for us, and usually we don't agree. Correct? Yeah. But He knows what's best for us, and what's best is not primarily, not primarily to serve ourselves with pleasure and comfort. It's to look beyond ourselves. I remember the great preacher and writer George MacDonald wrote, he says, the love of our neighbor is the only door out of the dungeon of self. There's a lot of truth there. There's a door out of our spoiled, rotten dungeon of self-obsession. And the door, love of neighbor. One time a Pharisee asked Jesus a question. He says, who exactly is my neighbor? And Jesus proceeded to tell him what became maybe the most famous parable in the Bible about the Good Samaritan. That's in Luke chapter 10, verse 30 and 32. Let me read it to you. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, speaking at a conference that night, and... (laughs) And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw the guy, he passed by on the other side. Now, in this famous parable, Jesus paints a picture of despair. Somebody's been brutally beaten, robbed, left for dead, and a priest comes along. You know, you'd you'd think somebody who would want to serve and help And then another guy comes, a Levite, and he's supposed to serve the priest at the temple. So surely one of these guys will at least stop, maybe call 911, go over and see if he's dead or alive. But they are like a lot of people in our country today. They are religious. They are devoted to God. But of course, we know they did not stop. They passed by to the other side. A year before he was assassinated, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a sermon on this very passage. And in his sermon, he says, the first question the priest and Levi asked was, if I stop to help this guy, what's going to happen to me? What will happen to me if I cross the road and stop? And Dr. King points out this very question we've already mentioned, what about me? And maybe they said, I don't know, what about my safety? You know, this guy ain't wearing a mask. Maybe I shouldn't go over there. I'll try to get everybody, all right. The, the Jericho Road, and I've been on it, was notoriously dangerous. 
And, and maybe they said, what about my next appointment? I'm running late. It's very important. In their minds, they probably had incredibly important things to do. Maybe they said, what will others think? See, especially for the priest, if the man was dead, he's unclean. You couldn't touch a dead man. And then you had to be unclean for seven days. What would this mean for his status or his reputation or his morality? Others might judge him. And so it's so easy for us to judge the characters in this story. But I think everybody struggles with the same questions. What about my safety? What about my well-being? What about all of the other important things in my life? What about my profile? What about my status? Now, now, enters from stage left, the villain, the bad guy. He enters the story. He's driving a 57 Chevrolet. He's got fuzzy dice hanging from the rearview mirror. He's got some old Budweiser beer cans in the floorboard. He's got a gun rack in the back, and he's got uh, his car chopped and lowered, and his muffler is real loud. And he's smoking Marlboro unfiltered. So he, so he comes into the story. And Jesus mentions the Samaritan. This is the guy who was the wrong guy. He's from the wrong tribe. He's in the wrong denomination. He's in the wrong race. He's in the wrong political party. He's got the wrong theology. So Jesus continues. Luke 10, verse 33 and 34. But a Samaritan, who were hated, by the way, as he journeyed, came to where this poor guy was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went over to him and bound up his wounds, stopped the bleeding, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, his 57 Chevy, and brought him to a motel and took care of him. Okay, so the villain turns out to be the hero. He, he not only feels pity for this poor guy, but he's moved to take some action and offer some care. So in his sermon, Dr. King then says, the good Samaritan came by and reversed the question. Not what will happen to me if I stop to help this guy, but what will happen to this guy if I don't stop to help him? Wow. Well, Dr. King says, this is why that man was good and great. He was great because he was willing to take a risk for humanity. He was willing to ask, what will happen to this man, not what will happen to me? So he brilliantly introduces the second question. The first question, what about me? Second question is the reverse. What about others? What will happen to another person if I don't take action, if I don't get involved, if I don't put myself at risk, if I don't speak up, or if I don't get uncomfortable? Dr. King then says that at the end of our life, the question won't be about our awards, achievements, how many people follow you on Facebook. It won't be about our treasures or status. The question on that day will be, what'd you do for anybody else? What did you do for others? And one of the reasons his sermon moved me so much is that Dr. King says, I don't know how long I'll live, and I'm not really concerned about it. But I hope I can live so well that the preachers can get up and say he was faithful. That's all. That's enough, he said. That's the sermon I want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful. You've been concerned about others. That's where I want to go from this point on the rest days of my life. And he quotes 
from Jesus, he who is greatest among you shall be your servant of most. He said, I want to be a servant. I want to be a witness for my Lord to do something to help others. Now, he didn't know how much longer he'd have to live in this world. In fact, it was almost exactly one year later, he gave his life in service for others. He was imprisoned, I think, over 29 times. He, was, he rallied a generation, I have a dream. He spoke out against injustice. He fought peacefully for love, equality, and he was murdered for his service. So when we ask the question, what about others? That's not an easy question. See, serving is not something that takes place on one weekend or three times a year for a special event. It's a question that requires a lifelong sacrifice. It's kind of like marriage, guys. <laughs> serving is never convenient. I wish we could get, well, I don't know. I'm busy. Well, I have this. Well, my kids got soccer. Hey, serving and sacrifice is never convenient. My wife's never asked me to do something when I thought, well, I don't have anything else to do, and I'm just bored thinking about what could I do. Thank you for suggesting I can do that. No, no, it's got to be right in the middle of the game. It's got to be right at an inconvenient time. And, and I just think, well, you just learn to do it. And that's what we have to do in the kingdom. It's never convenient. It will never be convenient. If I wait for perfect conditions, Ecclesiastes says, I'll wait forever. Nothing will get done. I'm going to wait for the right time to get married. Good luck on that one. The right time to buy a house, the right time to do this, the right time to do that. If you wait for things to settle down, wait for gas prices to come down or interest rates, you just wait forever, and life zooms by. Just get it, just get it right up here. It ain't convenient. Rick told you it wasn't, but you do it anyway. See, if we're not careful, serving others can be something we do simply to cross off of our to-do list. Mm, I served at the homeless shelter on Thanksgiving Day. Check. I gave a grocery bag of supplies so we could give it out to the less fortunate. Check. I did this project. Now I can go on about my regular lifestyle. So it feels satisfying to cross it off my to-do list. But when we talk about our church value of going out and serving others, we're not talking about an occasional project. We're talking about a lifelong commitment as a way of living to serve others, to serve our community, and to bring people into the kingdom of God. I want to, pop, I want to increase the population of heaven. I want to decrease the population of hell. I want to get lost people saved and saved people serving. I mean, that's a simple goal. Some of you may be called to pack up your life and your kids and move overseas as a missionary. Not many, but some occasionally are. But for many of us, a life of service will mean staying in the same job, going to the same school, living in the same community. But instead of living the same life out of self-service, you'll be called to live the life you have for the sake of others as you have opportunity. See, we open our eyes to the needs of others and we respect we respond by leaving our own agenda and our own desires to help them. You may not be technically a missionary, but you're called as a believer to live a missional life. We're all supposed to be witnesses. I mean, to stop looking inward and start looking out to the expansive and opportunities that are available outside of your dungeon of self. See, your work and the tone of your emails, the conflicts, the meetings, the managing, this is your mission, your neighborhood with the quirky neighbors in it and old people and young people. 
That's my mission. That's your mission. Your local coffee shop, your local HEB, your, your classmates, your teachers, students, your social media friends, your family. That is all of our mission. And the question you choose is, what about me? Or what about others? Will you focus your eyes inward or will you look out at the expansive opportunities all around? You know, years ago, I got the opportunity to visit Nelson Mandela's prison cell out on Robben Island, which is off the coast of Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, Mandela spent the majority of his early life fighting for the equality of blacks in South Africa. He was a lawyer. And for that fight, he was, because he had influence, he was imprisoned for 27 years in a tiny cell, eight feet by seven feet, with only a straw mat on the ground to sleep on. I think we have a picture for you to see. I stood in that thing. And I remember being there and turning and stretching out my arms to understand how cramped and small it really was. And for years, he had served his people. Now, he served 27 years in solitary confinement in that dungeon. In 1990, he was finally to be released. He would exit the door of the prison and head out to freedom. Can you imagine what that feeling must be like? Years of looking at a cramped eight-by-seven-foot cell and now being able to smell the outdoors, see the vastness of the world outside that he had missed over nearly 30 years and how it's changed. Well, I wouldn't have blamed him at all if he wanted to exit that door and spend some me time, right? Serving himself. He deserved it. But this was the first thing Mandela said to the public when he walked out the door. You ready? He said, I greet you all in the name of peace, democracy, and freedom for all. I stand here before you not as a prophet, but as a humble servant. This is the video of that statement. I greet you all in the name of peace, democracy, and freedom for all. I stand here before you not as a prophet, but as a humble servant. A humble servant of others. He would go on to help the residing president end apartheid and then became the first black president of South Africa. And I was there. There's a picture. I'd like to have 30 years of youth back. It was a, I was a speaker that night. It was an amazing moment of destiny that you just won't ever forget. Mandela had spent years in one dungeon, and he understood serving himself would have simply been switching imprisonment. So instead of asking the question, what about me? He asked the question, what about others? And he gave his life to the end to help that cause. When Jesus came on the scene, he turned everything upside down. I'll guarantee you, I don't care who you are, what race you're from, what political affiliation, if any, Jesus would offend you. I will guarantee you he would upset you, and you think you're really scoring big points with him. He upset everybody, including his own mother. Come on. His own family. 
He upset the disciples. He shook it from the top down, and it would be fun to watch what he would shake in our country. Wow. The Jewish people had assumed for so long and hoped that Messiah would be a conquering hero, a conquering king, and that when Messiah came, he would restore the nation to great political power and greatness in the world. And Jesus came. He came as a king, all right. He just didn't come as the king they expected. A king, of course, is served by others. In the ancient world, a king is surrounded by servants ready to do his bidding at any moment's notice. For a king, the question was, how can you serve me? What can you offer me? But Jesus reversed that question in that great statement in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. It says of Jesus, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this king offered a new way. Instead of asking, how can I be served? He said, I'm here to serve others. I came to seek and serve, to give my life a ransom for many. This is not what the people wanted. It's not what they asked for. I'm sure many would have said, he didn't restore, this is on Yelp, he didn't restore our nation with power. He came and taught peace and gentleness, sad and weak, one star, maybe two stars, because it really was cool when he walked on water. I'll give him two stars, see? Just like Dr. King, this king was murdered for his service. He showed us all how a life of service requires full commitment beyond just a check box on a to-do list a couple of times in a year, beyond a one-time trip, but a life of continuing sacrifice for the sake of others as unto the Lord. He taught us if we want a flourishing life, it comes not from serving ourselves, but from serving others. It's, it's that old principle, give, you shall receive. Give love, give time, give certain, man, it comes back in abundance to you. You're the, you're the benefactor, really. So there's a door out of the dungeon or prison of self. And I pray we can step out of that door, out of our own ego, our own pleasure, our own comforts, and may we step out of our worship gatherings constructed by our own preferences and our traditions, and may we speak out against injustice against any neighbor May, may we branch out of our comfortable tribes or our in-groups or our political identities, and may we live out the kingdom of God created by a king who came to be a servant. And may we ask the question, what about others? I remember, I'm through, I remember being in London, uh, this meant several years ago, and I met Al Faid, who was the owner of Harrods' famous department store in London. And his son, Dodie, was dating and planning to marry Princess Diana. Anybody remember that? Yeah. So it was a, there was a lot of grief. Now, he's a very devout Muslim. I'm a Christian preacher. But I remember going over to him, having been introduced by a mutual friend of his and me as a pastor, and I just said, Mr. Faid, I am terribly sorry in the tragic loss of your son. And I said, I'm a parent. I can't imagine what it must feel like to lose a child. And he was most gracious. He and I were different ideologies completely, but compassion, kindness, 
brought a bridge. When I went back to my table, a man in a tuxedo, white tuxedo, came over with another servant, and a big bottle of champagne was sent to my table. <laughs> and that was for Mr. Faid with gratitude, you know. Okay. What are you looking at me strange for? It's a nice bottle of champagne. What are you? It was, that's how you start to build a bridge. That's how you start, right? Oh, thank, thank you, my brother. I, I'll split the champagne with you after the service, all right? Put a little cranberry juice in it and have a mimosa or something, whatever. I want you to bow your head. I mean, we're coming into Christmas season. Get your head just out of you, what's in it for me. We just helped almost 2,000 kids have a Merry Christmas. And that's always about just be open, be, be observant. People may have a need you can meet. You don't have to brag about it, put it on social media, just do it. God says, you know, you, you do it privately, I'll reward you openly. Always look for opportunities to help someone, to serve someone. And we've got a lot of people in here that do that. And some of you need to learn how to do that. And just how can I be of service? We're going to have multiple services for Christmas. We've got a lot of, uh, of kids coming in for the, the giveaway of the presents and toys for CPS. And you need help. You need volunteers. Oh, but it's not convenient. Well, tell me what I don't know. Why don't you step up and say, count on me. I got some time. I can give you from this to this. I'll be there. I can do this. And sign up when you got, I don't, I mean, we have to go out like we got a helicopter, a 30 out six, a rope, and we're trying to stun you with a stun gun to grab you so we can sign you up to volunteer to help. Shouldn't be the case. Shouldn't be the case. We're not hunting rhinos. We're just asking you to serve. Jesus said the laborers are few, the harvest is plenty. So let's get out there and say, we'll do our part. We'll serve. We'll give. We'll help. Whatever it is, whatever I have, small or great, I'm in. I'm in for the kingdom. And that's a great time of the year to promote Jesus. I know Christmas is commercial. I know it's materialistic, but I know the songs are still about the coming of the birth of Jesus, the Savior of the world. It's still a great time to promote Jesus and Christian faith. Let's be a good one as we do it. Amen. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.